Welcome to Clear as Quantum, a podcast from Equus, funded by the Australian Research Council, about quantum science and the exciting technologies that are just around the corner. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we're trying to dust the cobwebs out of the quantum physics realm that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers. I work in Newcastle, and yesterday I visited my research lab for the first time in months. Hi, I'm Liz Bridge. I work in Queensland, and recently I've been working with PhD students and early career researchers, um, helping them find career advice for finding jobs in industry. Equus is the Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems. And in this podcast series, we're talking with a range of Equus researchers working in universities across Australia. And for today's episode, we're talking to Mike Tobar, all the way over in Perth at University of Western Australia. So welcome, Mike. Thanks for coming and having a chat with us. No problem. Did you always know that you wanted to get into science? The clarification of what I wanted to do came in year 12. In year 12, I realized I wanted to do a PhD in physics. Uh, and I knew I wanted to go to Monash University because my mum used to always take me there to open days. I didn't like the city. I wanted to have nothing to do with Melbourne University back in those days. I didn't like going into the city. I was from the outer suburbs. Monash was fantastic. Um, so that's what I knew I wanted to do in year 12. And, you know, before that I was into sport and I thought I might want to be a physiotherapist until I did work experience in that. But I knew I was interested in physics. Then when I got into university, my dad wanted me to do engineering and I thought oh, engineering. I didn't even know what it was. None of the people at school ever told me what engineering was. There can be some bad career guidance in schools. You know, people don't really understand hard science that well. And when I got into first year, I saw that electrical engineering was basically physics. So just to keep sort of to keep my dad happy and to realize I preferred that than chemistry, because I hated chemistry, <laughs> I then enrolled in the combined degree the next year, which I could have done in the first year. So to do a double degree in electrical engineering and maths and physics. And to tell you the truth, I learned all the electrodynamics and the duality in electrical systems in engineering. We had some really impressive lecturers. Jeff Lampard, I think, who invented the standard capacitor through conformal mappings, all very mathematical, complex algebra on a complex plane, worked out how to do a transformation to make a standard capacitor and things like this. So, so after those two degrees, I knew I wanted to do something in fundamental physics. I wanted to understand the universe. That's what was driving me. The perfect match was going to Perth and working with David Blair on these resonant bar antennas. So I, I made my choice of PhD by looking all around Australia. I looked at projects everywhere. I was offered a PhD in CSRO radio physics, and they were going to pay me extra money. I was offered a PhD at Monash for twice the money to work on motors in space, engineering motors in space. And that was just so damn boring. Now, who could want to engineer <laughs> motors? I mean, I, so I ended up going to Perth, and I always remember my first year of a PhD. Scholarships then were 12000 a year. And I, I remember having to fix my... I drove over the Nullarbor. I remember towards the end of the year having to fix my car, and then I was sort of starving over the Christmas. So I got myself a credit card. But lucky the next year they doubled the... But Perth's a magnificent place. I was so glad to come here. The beaches are beautiful. My main goal in life then was to do physics and go surfing. You do quite a bit of surfing, Mike. Is that right? Yeah, I, since I was young. I don't do so much anymore because there's too many young people out there. They're hard to compete with. No one gives an old guy <laughs> waves. But I take my son. My son's keen to learn. Uh, I took him a couple of, before COVID, I had him, we were down at Phillip Island and I was teaching him and we we're having a ball and he's really keen. 
I've got three or four surfboards, but I don't go regularly now. I mainly play soccer, but all through my, my life, I went so much, I had, I had to have an operation on my eye. I had a growth on my eye because you get too much UV. There is extra UV in Australia's sun. I know that because I lived for work for a few years in Germany. And yes, it's possible to get sunburned in Germany, but you've got to try harder. <laughs> Coming from the UK, I came to Australia for the first time in September and it yeah. wasn't a particularly warm or sunny day. Yeah. And I got my skin was stinging by the end of the day yeah. because the UV was so much stronger than at home. And so for the first year we were here, I was having to wear sunblock all the time. And now I can go out for 10, 20 minutes without having to get put sunblock on now. So <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about, about your work and how does it fit in with Equus and Quantum? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, my research career has been about undertaking precision measurements to look for new physics and to translate technology. Not that I purposely have gone out to translate technology. Um, it's just happened with the, the goal to test fundamental physics with precision measurement. So as a PhD student, I started off working on basically a huge optomechanical system, which was precision measurement way back in 89, and then as a postdoc with 93 and beyond. So, you know, the basic principle, I guess, is that when, when I joined UWA and started doing, doing these experiments, we cooled to four degrees, and we had to cool this huge bar, which was one and a half tons four degrees Kelvin, and it took three weeks, <laughs> right? Thermodynamic noise is a problem, but if we cool it down and we get all the random thermal vibrations die down and what you're left with is quantum. How do you cool an object that big down to four degrees above absolute zero? Yeah, just a huge cryostat and engineering that's... Other researchers in Italy went down to 200 millikelvin. They actually cooled a, a big bar down to 200 millikelvin. And now we're buying Blue Force dilution fridges. We've got three of them in the lab. And now we've got beautiful network analyzers, lots of equipment, much better labs. It's just our whole lab's transformed. So this system was a forerunner of what's now known as quantum optomechanics. So when we had these big systems, we always knew the limit to precision was the standard quantum limit. And so the goal to measure gravity waves in those devices um, led me into engineered quantum systems before we had engineered quantum systems. When the first center started back in 2011, I went to an AIP Congress and Jared Milburn's student back then was giving a talk on an optomechanical system. And after that, I approached Jared and then he invited me to be in, in Equus when he realized the sort of knowledge that already existed on optomechanics from the resonant bar community. Wow. So I've been in the game for a long time before engineered quantum systems started, but my, <laughs> my fundamental goal on doing physics after doing my double degree at Monash University in electrical engineering and theoretical physics and applied maths, I wanted to be a physicist. This subject that we do now, engineered quantum systems, is sort of a more a broader range of what the resonant bar was. Now we're using these things for everything. We're measuring gravity gradients for sensing magnetic fields, not just gravity waves. And so the, it's just amazing uh, throughout my career how, how I've seen this um, technology bloom. And I was very happy to be involved with this center of excellence. It was a really good time of my life. This research is just fun. My goal is still to look at fundamental physics. And so we've gone into now axion, dark matter detection, and it's the same principles. There's so much, there's so many exciting things to do. Sometimes you wonder, what should I do first? 
you know. <laughs> so, Mike, forgive me, but what is a dark matter axion? I don't know. We all know there's these, this dark matter everywhere, and it has to be a particle, but we don't know its mass. Now, if I'm looking for a, a particle in a high-energy collider, mm -hmm. I'm looking for something that's high-energy. Yeah. Okay. But the particles don't have to be like that. That's just what the detector can can measure. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. But dark matter, we don't know its energy. Um, the community thought it might be these supersymmetry particles. They're called WIMPs. And uh, so far, none of the experiments have been successful. So now there's a big doubt over supersymmetry. The other major particle that researchers thought it could be is this particle called the axion. And this was dubbed by Frank Wilczek, who won the Nobel Prize for an, another area of physics. They realized that there's this problem in fundamental physics. If you have a neutron, a neutron's made up of um, quarks, and the quarks have varying charges. And so the neutron should have a dipole moment. They've tried to measure it, and they haven't measured any dipole moment. Wow. So this is a major, major problem in physics. And so the, the way to solve that is propose a new particle that um, solves this problem. And they dubbed that the axion. And some physicists think this is just as important as the Higgs particle, finding the Higgs particle, the axion must exist. Now, when you do calculations, if the axion exists, no one knows its frequency or mass. Theorists give you theories where they give you a range where they think it should be, and we might look there. Um, when you do the calculations in the early universe, lots of axions must be produced. And so therefore, it's a really strong candidate for dark matter, because not only should the particle exist to solve this other problem, when you do calculations, it should be produced in the early universe, either before or after inflation, and it can describe dark matter. Now, this particle can be much lower energy than all these high energy particles we look in a collider. So if you look at something like one of the one of the uh, nails in the coffin that says that this must be some particle um, is that if you look at the bullet cluster, the luminous matter and the dark matter have a different center of mass. And they can tell that through gravitational lensing. They can map it and see where, where it is. And people have done calculations and it looks like that at the bullet cluster, that it's like a similar to a collision of superfluid. So here we're talking about a particle totally different to anything. And so it must be all around us. If it exists, it's all around us. We can, we can suppose how it interacts with normal matter because there's some very small interaction. Like in a neutrino, you can figure out ways to detect it. And the theorists can figure out ways to detect the axion too. And that's what we're trying to do. And it turns out just to be a microwave experiment at low temperatures, very similar to a quantum computer experiment. Wow. So you've got a particle that is like a subatomic particle, but you're sort of looking at it on cosmic scales. Exactly. Exactly. That's it's a bit mind blowing. Pretty mind twisting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'd like to pick up on one thing, Mike, because you've now talked about these um, delusion fridges, these ultra cold experiments, and a number of other people in previous episodes of Clear of Quantum also work with, with really low temperatures. And it's not too surprising to, to see why, because when you're trying to access quantum properties of matter, you need to sort of quieten down all of the other noisy properties that get in the way. That's right. And so yes. going cold is one of the ways to do this. So can you tell me a little bit more about this, this uncertainty principle? I remember hearing it 
uh, when I was a student, and, and my lecturer described it as one of the more creative excuses you could give to a policeman who pulls you over if you were speeding on the freeway. And <laughs> if the policeman asked, do you know how fast you were going? You could say, well, no, I don't, but I know exactly where I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uncertainty principle is just comes from quantum mechanics because particles have this dual description, a particle description and a wave description. Uh, the wave description comes about because your, your wave function becomes this probability that you don't know exactly where it is. And that's how it gets these wave properties. And um, we can't really understand it in terms of um, our everyday experience. But the way I look at it is that mathematics is a language and mathematics describes physics through the theory of quantum mechanics. Yeah, so it's basically this dual, dual property that sometimes in one, if you're doing one experiment, the particle properties of photons will be more apparent. And that's something like trying to count photons. They're acting in that regime. The photons are acting like a, like a ball, like a particle. You have a meter that clicks, the photon comes in, you might destroy the photon. And you say one photon, two photons. And we know nothing about the phase of the photons because if, they, if the photon is a wave, for example, it, it, it has this wave function. So this is a duality where a photon can be a, a particle and a wave at the same time. But all particles can be like that. And just some particles have mass and um, then that mass dictates its momentum, which is your other variable to where you are. And there, you can't know one exactly where one or the other if you have this wave properties. Mm. So the idea of the uncertainty principle there is that there are certain measurements that you can't do with full accuracy. You can't do both of them with full right. accuracy or with okay. arbitrary accuracy at the same time. If you measure one, then you've sort of you've focused so far in on one language that that you've you've lost a little bit of what you could measure in in a different picture that's why if we want to surpass this quantum limit we have to not worry about one of the observables and concentrate on the other right so that was what i was going to ask is that the quantum limit that you're referring yes, to yeah it sounds exactly. like it is so you're trying to get past this sort of yeah. fundamental quantum uncertainty in, in just one of those directions yeah that's where these measurements become much harder because you can't use just brute force classical techniques because you get this limit so you now have to be clever and the higher frequency you go the more important because the quantum noise generated by this uncertainty principle gets more relevant at higher frequencies. For example, in optics, you can see it very easily in the shot noise. But in, in microwaves, you can, you, it becomes apparent when you cool to a millikelvin. And so, Mike, I th am I correct in saying that when we talk about quantum squeezing or just the phrase squeezing, that's this manipulation of the uncertainty in these two different measurement schemes? That's true. Yeah, that's true. So this squeezing will be just, yeah, it will be looking at your readout. But there's also quantum non-demolition is when you try is the is the back action on your system. It's so squeezing is one thing, but a quantum non-demolition experiment is when I try to measure this, say this resonant bar or optomechanical system, when I try to measure it, that process of measurement acts back and puts a force on the system due to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle fluctuating. And so what you can do is you do what's called a stroboscopic measurement. You time your back action to, to be acting on the mechanical oscillator uh, when you're not reading it out. And then you read it out when the back action is not operating on the mechanical oscillator. Uh, in theory, you could blow up your experiment if you do it too well. 
because <laughs> you put a whole bunch of energy in it, into it. Yeah. That's all in Brzezinski's book way back. He wrote that in the 80s. <laughs> right. Yeah. It sounds like the stakes can be high. <laughs> my, my mental image here of blowing up large but very cold bars is, is, quite, is quite vivid in my mind. The big problem we had with our bars is that the Q was 10 to the 8 and the frequency was 700 hertz. So if you, if you did that accidentally, excited it accidentally through back action, which would happen, it would ring. It would ring for um, uh, uh, two days. Right. And if that, yeah, if that amplitude was out of your position bandwidth of your transducer, which you could use to damp it down, then you'd have to wait to look to, uh, you could, there was nothing you could do about it <laughs> just to conceptualize that for the listeners it's a bit like hitting a tuning fork or a gong and it just the, the noise ringing down but for two days yeah uh, so as a student and a postdoc it was great working on all these experiments they weren't um such high profile then but the resonant bars making a comeback we just published some papers recently well, in 2014 maxine goriatrov and myself proposed using ball res bulk acoustic quartz resonators to look at high frequency gravity waves in the megahertz we know they exist now and now we had our first experiment and you could use all these quantum tricks at low temperatures on these things as well so in principle we can pull this to millikelvin and do these quantum non-demolition readouts on these high frequency devices so that will be something we'll be looking to do at the future we're now joined a consortium of people looking for gravity waves that one megahertz to hundreds of gigahertz. Wow. So this is something I'd like to pick up on because you've, you've um, it's been a really interesting journey for the science, you know, doing some stuff um, decades ago that was super exciting and fun, um, but then it's turned out to be, you know, taken up by people in different communities. It's turned out to develop a useful language that describes or or enables activity to be done in other sort of areas. That's that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. Do you have any cool stories of of places that you've been, or conferences, or, or collaborations? You know. Well, yes. Um, I must say, the person who invented the resonant bar antenna was Joseph Weber. I met him at a conference, the first and only time I've met him, he's now passed. In 1993, I'd just become a postdoc in Nathia Gali in Pakistan, which is a sort of a place you can't really go to now. It's in the mountains of Pakistan. It was a really interesting conference. And I met him and I spent all my breakfast, dinner, lunch, talking to him because I found him very fascinating. Um, telling us the stories of the early days of making these detectors. And he had this quantum theory how the phonons would get enhanced due to this quantum effect. And there are effects like that. He's told us a lot of stories about when he was in the war and getting washed up on an island and throwing coconuts, <laughs> monkeys throwing coconuts at them. And they were so very interesting. And then we had a midnight hike up a mountain. So we would see the sunrise. So we started at midnight up a mountain in Pakistan. And I was walking with him and talking to him. And there was all these uh, uh, guides with us in the dark. And as we were walking, he, he went to step on the side and a rock gave away and he, oh, and he no. fell three meters down the, down, down the mountain. And all the, he was the, one of the big guests and all, all, the, uh, all the tour guys went running down to get him up and, you know, and he was fine and we kept talking. But the next morning, he was telling everyone about his 30-meter 30, 30 drop down the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And then I realized <laughs> this guy exaggerates by an order of magnitude, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you almost need to exaggerate by orders of magnitude if you're trying to invent gravitational wave detection. <laughs> so that that was that that's wow. was a really experience that stands out in my mind. A conference in Pakistan, it was amazing. You know, I was with some famous researchers then, some people who measured torsion balances, an Indian guy. And on our way back, we were stopping in a little town and it was a bit crazy. You know, there was like, you look down the river, there's marijuana growing everywhere, for example. You look into the, the cracks and then we go into a shop and you, they're selling guns, just guns. It was crazy. And this Indian guy got a photo of him with his gun. I met him years later and I reminded him about that. And he says, yeah, he's till this day, he's scared that that <laughs> picture will appear somewhere. <laughs> Because things have totally changed since then. That was the early 90s, you know. There is doing it for a joke, you know, just getting a photo in this gun shop. <laughs> Mike, there's a question we've been asking everyone on this podcast. Do you have a sound that's, for you, the sound of quantum? Yeah, Doctor Who, definitely. My ringtone is Doctor Who. I mean, he could travel back in time. He can. He's basically a quantum particle. Teleportation. <laughs> Teleportation, yeah. It's all there. Uh-huh. Doctor Who. Yeah. yeah. The, the TARDIS must have something quantum about it, about how big it is inside compared to the outside, right? That's got to be a quantum phenomenon yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wonder if that's connected to the quantum yeah. limit. You know, it, it just depends whether you're measuring it in, in one or the other. I think he's worked out quantum gravity. So where probably there's with gravity involved, you can do something extra. That's another major point with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. When you build these big mechanical oscillators, you can actually see if the Heisenberg uncertainty limit depends on the mass. And we've done some experiments. So. Right. Not only using quantum mechanics, but actually sort of testing it yeah, or that's right. pushing it and checking it. Looking for quantum, a, theory, a sign of quantum gravity. See, this is something that really interests me because, you know, you hear a lot, oh, well, quantum mechanics, why do physicists go on about it so much? Well, it's sort of because it works. And it's, it's not because a whole lot of physicists have just sort of blindly accepted it and said, oh, it sounds good. Like, it's pretty rigorously pushed and tested. I think physicists, there's physicists who would love to disprove some parts of quantum mechanics. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's mathematics. The language is mathematics, really. If you look at the theorists, come up with all sorts of theories. And it's all based on mass, but you don't know if it's reality or not. Um, but one <laughs> of them, some of them are, but some of them aren't. Some of them are just pure maths but mathematics is a language and quantum mechanics is is rigorous mathematics you only the only i found the only way you get an understanding is when you delve into the mass so we do quite a bit of theoretical stuff understanding our measurements and we come up with new ideas based on the test models and you know ax, for example axions modify electrodynamics so we can write down the new equations and then you've got to understand what these new equations are saying to you that sounds pretty cool. I just wondered, Mike, if you wanted to comment a bit on some of the technologies that are coming out of the research you've done. You mentioned at the beginning of the discussion that there was a lot of technology coming out of it, and I wondered if you wanted to just touch on some of that. Yeah, sure. Um, for instance, when we were developing the resonant bars uh, with my colleague Eugene Ivanov, who came from Russia, when he came in, I think it was about 92, um, and I started my PhD in 89, we looked at our work and we'd done very similar work. So we developed these acoustic systems and then drive it with a low phase noise oscillator. And the readout of our 
microwave system use this thing called a microwave interferometer which suppresses the carrier then amplifies so you can avoid certain noise sources and we realized that that could actually use to cancel noise in just your in radar systems and um, Eugene designed the circuit we built it together with a student and the first time we turned it on it worked could you believe that we we turned it on and we had we had a an oscillator with a thousand times lower phase noise than anything ever built. Uh -huh. And when we did it and we saw the results, we thought, is this real? And um, <laughs> then we met and it was. And But we would, a company was had licensed our, our technology and so we patented it and then we weren't allowed to talk about it for three years until a, uh, we published the papers with the results and no one knew how we did it. And then a researcher in NIST worked out how we did it. And then we were, then the company said, you should publish it now. So then we published it in 98. But that was three years before we actually did the first experiment in 95. And um, that was such an advance in technology, which could be applied across the board, that um, Raytheon ended up was, but it, well, they had a, the, the company started in Fremantle, Poseidon Scientific Instruments. Raytheon bought them out in the end. It's brought out the whole company and all that technology is in the radar systems in, in the defense radar of Raytheon. So, and that has also is, is now very important for quantum computers as per usual, like in the gravity bar, if I'm now trying to read out a qubit or something, you have to have low noise as well. So in some systems, in atom systems, especially, you have this aliasing effects and, and all, all, all clocks need these very high low phase noise oscillators driving them. For example, we've imported these cryogenic versions to Paris Observatory. All their clocks use these devices so they don't um, have this aliasing effect that the, if they use a very bad signal to pulse their atoms, you'll get this thing called the Dick effect, which is basically aliasing and will, your stability will be much worse. Yeah, so this technology that we developed allowed you to operate at fundamental limits in the large signal regime. That's where it was very uh, impactful. It's a really nice story. Yeah. I like that something you've worked on in the lab has gone out and been a useful technology yeah. globally. And that's what's good about this new center that they're trying to promote these sort of efforts. And I think it's good because I, even though my favorite thing to do is test fundamental physics, I do think as researchers, we have, we are obliged to, push technology out, out for the, you know, we get funded by the government. If we can make some new technology that will benefit the country, we should go ahead, you know. And that's what's helped me build up the laboratory we have now. Without these translational outcomes, we wouldn't be where we are now. Right. If you can do both, people like that. If you, do, you can do one or the other, you'll be just, yeah, that's good, you're over there. But if you can do both, and, well, and to tell you the truth, when you develop these commercial type systems, or for, you, you come up with new ideas that, that then feed back onto your fundamental physics. There's no doubt about that. And vice versa. Yeah, It's all about opportunity. Take the opportunity when it comes. That's what I, I just don't leave up opportunities unturned. Well, that sounds great. It sounds like you've had lots of exciting opportunities and you've done lots and lots with it. I think um, that we'd better let you get back to, to doing more of these good things, Mike. No so thanks very much for coming on and for sharing some of those great stories and that really fascinating yeah, science. Thank you. All the best with the future of your research. Yeah. And I must just finally say that 
you never do these things alone. You do it with group and you do it with people. And that's what I love about the centre. There's lots of great people to work with and lots of fun things to do. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. No worries. And thank you all for listening. Hopefully we've been able to make that as clear as quantum, or perhaps even clearer. We'd love to hear your quantum questions. Send them to engage at equus.org and we'll try to answer them in future episodes. That's E-N-G-A-G-E at E-Q-U-S dot org. To learn more about quantum physics, explained by experts in the field, subscribe to Clear as Quantum wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Join us for another episode next week. And until then, remember to keep your mind open, but not so open that your brains fall out.